Now, at the end of the service, when, when you, if you're a member and you came in today, you received a card, a card to share whether you feel like after prayer that this is a young man that God's called to be the worship pastor of Carnival First Baptist Church. So I'm going to ask you at the end of the service to check either, yes, I believe this is God's will, or no, I do not believe it's God's will. And as you exit today, if you would place those cards in the boxes along with your offering, we would appreciate that. All right, take your Bible today and turn to Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. I want to speak to you on this subject today, kingdom authority. Now, Mark's action-packed gospel begins without any reference to the lineage of Jesus or without any angelic fanfare announcing his incarnation and speaking to Joseph and Mary at all. In fact, Mark's first reference to the Lord Jesus presents him as being about 30 years old, somewhere around 30 years old. The glory of Israel during the days of King David and King Solomon have faded into the past. It's a faded memory. The mighty empire of Rome was exercising its hardcore authority over God's covenant people, and it was hard to be a Jew under Roman authority. They longed for Messiah's coming because in their mind and in their heart, they wanted the Messiah to be a king, an earthly king, and to rid them of Roman occupation and Roman tyranny. But listen, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, make no mistake about it. However, Jesus did not come to initiate a political revolution or a cultural revolution. Jesus came to engage in a cosmic revolution. His targets were Satan, sin, and death. Therefore, the first verse of Mark's gospel gives us a clue. Look at it. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel, the word gospel means good news, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Now, in these 16 chapters of Mark's gospel, we see the Holy Spirit inspiring Mark to take some information that he had received from the apostle Peter and to, to share a, a, a true portrait of who the Messiah really was. The key verse in this entire gospel is chapter 10, verse 45, where Jesus said, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, with that being said, I, I want you to look at chapter 2. We looked at chapter 1 last week. In chapter 2, we come across a scene that occurred in the town of Capernaum. Now, this small town on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee became the hub of Jesus' ministry. It was here that he preached great 
great truths like the Sermon on the Mount. It, it was here that he delivered within the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes. It, it was here that he did many miracles like walking on water, like healing so many people and delivering people who were demon-possessed. Jesus had taught in their synagogue. He had delivered people from demonic possession. He had healed many who were ill. And Mark reveals one of these amazing miracles here in the first part of chapter 2. Look at verses 1 and 2. When he had come back to Capernaum, now understand this. In chapter 1, it tells us about this fantastic ministry that Jesus had in the beginning there in Capernaum. In fact, it became so powerful and so many people were moved by the Lord Jesus that he literally had to get out of town. And he had to carry his message to other areas in Galilee. But he came back to Capernaum. Why? Because that's the hub of his ministry. So he came back to Capernaum several days afterward, and it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no longer room, not even near the door, and he was speaking the word to them. Listen, the word got about that Jesus is in the house. And I'll tell you, people came from everywhere. They, they, they crowded into that little house. They gathered around the doorway. They gathered around the windows. Why, you couldn't move within a square inch because it was covered by people. In fact, so many people came because they wanted to hear the teaching of the Word of God by Jesus. That's what he was doing in the house. He was teaching the Word. Wouldn't you love to have been a fly on the wall? You might could have got in the house if you were a fly on the wall. Can you imagine being in that house and hearing the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the eternal God, reveal truth from the Word of God? Oh, my goodness. I can't imagine what that must have been like. Everybody was hanging on every word that came out of his mouth. And that's when it happened. Look at verse 3 and 4. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Now just think about what I just read. Jesus was inside the house teaching. Four men show up, and they're carrying their friend who is lying on his pallet, and they are determined that they're going to get their friend to Jesus. So they come up to the outside part of the house, and they worm their way to the door, but nobody will part and let them bring their friend to Jesus. And they are besides themselves. But they're not going to give up. You see, these guys were risky. They were risk-takers. And whatever it took, they were going to get their friend to Jesus. That's why one of them had the bright idea. Hey, do you see those outside stairs? They go up to the roof. And back in that day, in these homes, people would 
go up on the roof to relax or be alone. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 10, the Bible tells us that, that Peter went up on the roof of the little house he was staying in to pray. We can get up on the roof. And the other friend said, well, dude, what are we going to do when we get up on the roof? I don't know. Let's figure it out. So, so they got their friend. They climbed the stairs. They got up on the roof. And the third friend looked and said, look, hey, let's dig a hole in this roof. And let's lower our friend down to Jesus from above. We can't get in from below. We'll get at him from above. And, and sure enough, they started digging. And literally, in, in the Greek, it says they unroofed the roof. That's the literal meaning of the word. So they sort of figured out how big the hole had to be to lower their friend down to Jesus, and, and they started tearing the roof up. Meanwhile, inside, the Son of God, the Messiah, was teaching. Now, I want you to imagine Jesus, a throng of people gathered around, hanging on every word he said, and suddenly dust starts floating down from above. And then little twigs, and then little sticks, and more debris comes down from above. And they're, they're making a racket up there. They're tearing a hole in the roof. I wonder what Jesus thought. Hey, I've got to be honest with you. I've been preaching for 36 years. And, and I, I'll tell you, I've been distracted before. I've been distracted by a cell phone going off. I never will forget this as long as I live. Before we got in this building, we were in the, the, the fellowship, what's fellowship hall now. And I was preaching my heart out, and a cell phone went off, and it kept going off and going off and going off. Finally, I just stopped. And I saw where it was from. It's on my left over here. And I looked, and it was the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. A lady was digging in her purse. Do you know what's in a lady's purse? <laughs> Everything. And she's digging in her purse, and stuff is flying out of her purse. And she's trying to get to her cell phone to cut the cell phone off. And I just die laughing. I mean, it's beyond the point. I'm so distracted at that point. I've been distracted by crying babies, people getting up and going to the bathroom. There's a lot of things. But I have never been distracted by somebody tearing a hole in a roof. I wonder what Jesus must have thought. I wonder if he looked up and he sort of smiled. Because in his heart, he knew that there were four men on that roof who would do anything they had to do to get their friend to Jesus. Because they knew that Jesus was his only hope. Finally, the hole was big enough. And they took some ropes, and they attached the rope to each corner of the, the pallet the man was lying on, and they just lowered him down to the feet of Jesus. I, I can just see Jesus, can't you? 
he looks down at this paralyzed man, and he smiles. And then he glances up. And all four of those guys have their head protruding through the hole, wet watching to see what Jesus would do. And again, I, I believe Jesus smiled. What happened next sent shockwaves through the crowd. In verse 5, the Bible says, And Jesus, seeing their faith, he saw the faith of the four friends and the paralytic. I, I got to thinking. If our faith can't be seen, is it really faith? Think about that. But Jesus saw their faith and said to the paralytic, he's looking at him, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, in, in that day, in, in that period of history, first century Israel, people assumed that suffering was somehow tied to personal sin. We aren't told how long this man has been paralyzed. We, we're not told how he was paralyzed, but we're told that he was paralyzed. He could not move. He could not walk. Because of, of his growing reputation as a miracle worker, worker, people were anxious to see what Jesus would do. And when Jesus said, son, your, for, your sins are forgiven you, the, the crowd looks in, in confusing amazement and, and said, but, but, but he needs to walk. You, you see, to the crowd, forgiveness of sin was secondary, whereas being able to walk was primary. Just the opposite with Jesus. And Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, the scribes, they're a different story. These were religious leaders in Judaism. They were the experts in the Jewish law, both the written law and the oral law. And they were so mad when they heard Jesus say, son, thy sins are forgiven, that their heads were about to explode. You, you see, right here in Mark chapter 2, we see a growing conflict between the scribes, the Pharisees, and the Lord Jesus. In fact, in Mark chapter 1, verse 21 and 22, the Bible says they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and began to teach. They were, listen to what the crowds, and they were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching as one having authority and not as the scribe. Now, you don't think that then great on the scribes? They're thinking, are, are you telling me that you think that this guy is a better preacher than we are? 
And that's where it started. But the conflict between Jesus and these men would grow by leaps and bounds. In fact, in Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Bible says the, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. You know what Jesus did? He healed a man on the Sabbath. God forbid. He had the audacity to heal a man on the Sabbath. And they lost it. You see, the Pharisees and scribes, they were sort of in league together. They had a common enemy now, and his name was Jesus of Nazareth. And they were conspiring how they might kill him. And right here, early in the Gospel of Mark, we see the shadow of the cross. And these guys were constantly questioning the authority of Jesus. As we go through the Gospel of Mark, we'll see it over and over and over again. Now I want you to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Now, now, get this now. They didn't say a word. They did not say a word to each other or to anybody else. They were just thinking and reasoning in their hearts and their minds. And guess what? Jesus knew what they were thinking without them saying a word. Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? And if I had been one of those boys, I'd say, uh-oh. Uh oh And Jesus said, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk? By, by the way, it was easier for Jesus to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. You know why? Because nobody could know whether they had been forgiven or not. It was invisible, right? Forgiveness is invisible. But I'll tell you what, if Jesus were to say to that old boy, look, take up your pallet and walk, he would be putting his life and reputation on the line. Everyone would know if he really had the power and authority to heal a paralytic. And if he could heal a paralytic, it would prove that he could forgive sin. Which is easier to say, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, he looks down at the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. Jesus knew what they were thinking. Did he have the right? Did he have the authority to forgive sins? A absolutely. 
Mark tells us at the outset of his gospel that Jesus is a Savior. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is the, the name Jesus means Savior. Mark tells us in, in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus tells us in chapter 1, verse 1, I mean Mark tells us that he is the Son of God. So to prove his authority, Jesus looks at the paralytic, told him to get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. This was a pivotal moment, to say the least. Look at verse 12. And he got up and immediately picked up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone so that they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Oh, man. Those four old boys who had their head protruding through the hole they dug, they couldn't wait to see if their friend was going to get up and walk when Jesus told them to get up and walk. The, the crowd, that they couldn't wait to see if Jesus could really heal a paralytic. And the scribes were over there, and they probably had their arms folded. And they doubted that Jesus had that kind of power, that kind of authority. But they didn't have to wait long, did they? Because the Bible says that this old boy got up immediately. He got up immediately. He didn't have to go to rehab. He got up immediately, and he started walking. He rolled up his pallet, and, and I'll tell you, the crowd just, just it was like the, the opening of the sea of, uh, the, the Red Sea for the children of Israel. They just opened up, and he went out. Hey, look, I got to thinking about this. If I'm a betting man, I'm not. If I were a betting man, I would bet you that those four friends on that roof, I, pray, I bet you they set a record for getting off a roof. I, I bet you they got off that roof so quick and, and they joined up with their, their, their friend, their paralytic friend who was now walking and praising God and just ha having a hallelujah moment and, and they must have given a chest bump. Right? They gave him high fives, and they celebrated what the Lord Jesus Christ had done for their friend. That's why they brought him to Jesus in the first place. In their heart, they knew that Jesus had the authority to do a miracle in the spiritual realm and the physical realm, and he did it. Now, I'm going to just zero in for just a moment on verse 10 again. Look at it. It's very important. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Notice that Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. By the way, that's a title that Jesus gives himself over and over in this gospel. Now, this was not a veiled reference to his humanity at all. 
No, this title had prophetic significance. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, Daniel the prophet wrote these words at the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Hey, when Jesus called himself the Son of Man, he was claiming kingdom authority. And he certainly demonstrated that authority in the encounter with the paralytic, the scribes, and all the people who gathered in the home and outside the home that day. The conflict with the religious leaders revolved around an issue of authority. And here's the truth I want to drop in your heart today, and I want you to always remember this. Jesus has full kingdom authority. Jesus said in the Great Commission, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? Go there, therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe what all, whatever I've commanded you. Jesus has full kingdom authority. Listen. Every president, every dictator, every ruler, and every country of this world that has ever lived will one day bow the knee to Jesus. Every dictator, every ruler, every president will one day say, Jesus, you are Lord. Listen, friend, Satan himself and every demon of hell will one day bow the knee to King Jesus and say, Jesus, you are Lord. Jesus has full kingdom authority. He had it that day, he's gotten this day, and he'll have it in the future, forever. Now, what does that mean for us? Well, I, I looked at this story, and, and I saw, sort of drew away three things I want to talk to you about, about the kingdom authority of Jesus. Number one, Jesus has the authority to know what's in your heart and your mind. He, he, knew, he knew exactly what the scribes were thinking and reasoning in their hearts. He knew it. They didn't have to tell him. Nobody had to tell on them. He knew it. He knows your thoughts. Listen, you've got to understand that King Jesus with kingdom authority knows every thought that you have. He knows every motive behind everything you will do in your life. He knows everything that you've ever done and everything that you will ever do. There's no way that you can conceal your thoughts your motives and your actions from Jesus. He knows everything. The Bible says 
in Romans 2, 16, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus. I want you to understand something today. Just as the scribes were accountable to Jesus in the first century, every person within the sound of my voice is accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ. You are accountable in this life, and you will be accountable in the next life, and you will be accountable when he judges the world. Here's the second thought I had. Jesus has the kingdom authority to bring legitimate healing to your life. Pastor, do you believe that Jesus has the authority to heal somebody physically? Absolutely. Jesus can do whatever he wants to do. He doesn't have to ask anybody's permission. That's what kingdom authority means. Listen, I know of people that have been healed physically. I have no doubt in my mind that our daughter Heather, when she was a little baby, was healed by the sovereign hand of Jesus. No doubt in my mind. And many of you know people that have been healed physically by the Lord Jesus Christ. But listen... Not only did Jesus have the authority to heal people physically, Jesus has the authority to heal people emotionally. Some of you have deep, deep emotional wounds. Maybe it was a spouse who trounced on your heart and broke it into a thousand pieces. And that wound is still fresh today. Or, or maybe, just maybe, you were wounded by your parents. And they didn't encourage you, they discouraged you. They talked down to you. Or maybe you were, you were wounded by the death of somebody that you loved. And it could have happened years ago. But that wound is still fresh in your heart. Or maybe you were wounded by somebody that sexually abused you. Can I say something to you today? My Jesus has the authority to heal you. To heal you physically. To heal you emotionally. Nothing is impossible with him. Here's a final thing I want to share with you. And I want to drill down on this for just a moment. Jesus has the authority to forgive your sins. Every single one of them. The one that you would absolutely die if it were made public, that, that very sin, that, that worst sin that you've categorized in your life, the one that you are absolutely afraid that one day somebody's going to find it. I'm telling you on the authority of the inerrant, inspired, infallible word of the living God, Jesus has kingdom authority to forgive that sin and every sin you've ever committed in your life. You can't produce your own forgiveness. 
I, I tell you, it is absolutely asinine to believe that somehow your good works can outweigh your bad works and therefore you can be forgiven of your sins. That is not biblical. And let me tell you that a church can't forgive your sins. I don't care if it's a Baptist church, a Catholic church, I don't care. A priest cannot forgive your sins. An angel cannot forgive your sin. There's only one person in all of human history, one person in all of, created, of creation that can forgive your sin, and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the only one that can forgive you. You have sinned against God. It's interesting. In Psalm 31, when David wrote this psalm because of his sin against Bathsheba and against Uriah, you know what he said in that psalm? He said, against you and you only have I sinned, O God. Oh, my friend, every sin that you ever commit in your life is ultimately a sin against a holy, righteous God. And only he can forgive sin. Now listen to this. Look back at verse 10 again. I want to show you one other thing. Jesus said, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority, look at these two words, on earth to forgive sins. If Jesus forgives your sins, he will have to do it while you're still living on this earth. Forget about the nonsense of purgatory. There is no forgiveness once you've stepped over the line into eternity. If you're going to be forgiven of your sin, Jesus has to do it now while you're still living. Once you die or he comes, your destiny is sealed. In fact, in Revelation 22, 11, the Bible says, Let the one who does wrong still do wrong. Let the one who is filthy still be filthy. Let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. The good news of the kingdom is that Jesus died on the cross for your sin, and he was raised from the dead so that you might be justified before a holy and righteous God, and so that he could grant to you the forgiveness that you can never uh, pull off yourself or nobody else can give it to you. Only Jesus can forgive your sins. You say, what do I have to do? you got to do what these old boys did in the story. you got to put your faith in Jesus. you got to quit trusting yourself. you have to quit trusting your religion. You have to quit trusting your religious leaders. Religious leaders can't forgive you. Only Jesus can forgive you. And you have to put your faith and trust in Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord. I'll tell you, he will save you. He will forgive all of your sins. He will give you perfect righteousness. He will bring you into his glorious eternal kingdom. And he will give you victory over Satan, sin, and death. Won't you come to Jesus today? Some of you here, maybe listening by live stream, maybe watching our television ministry, maybe here in the building, and you're not saved. You're not saved. 
You've never been forgiven. And you say, well, you don't understand, Pastor. My greatest need is, is I'm lonely. Pastor, my greatest need, I've got a financial. No, your greatest need is a need for forgiveness of your sin. That's your greatest need. And I want to invite you. Come to Jesus today. Trust him by faith to save you, forgive you, and give you the, the, the gift of eternal life. In just a moment, I'm going to ask our staff to come. In fact, I'm going to ask staff to come right now, and they're going to be here, and I'm going to invite you to leave your seat in just a moment. If you want to talk to one of our staff members about having your sins forgiven. Now, remember, they can't forgive your sin, but they can tell you how Jesus can forgive your sin, and we would love to minister to you in this moment. Hey, look, I got to thinking about this. There are a lot of people in this church who are saved. You're saved. Jesus has forgiven your sin. But I'll tell you, every believer in this church knows somebody who's not saved. Every believer in this church knows somebody who needs Jesus to forgive them. And I'm going to ask you to leave your seat as a believer and kneel at this altar and call out that friend, that family member, that co-worker. Call out their name before the throne of Jesus and ask him to save them. Ask him to show you how to take a risk to make sure that you get your friend or family member to Jesus. Would you bow your head with me, please? Heavenly Father, in the precious name of Jesus... I thank you for this story. Now, Lord, I pray that somebody within the sound of my voice would turn to Jesus in faith and be saved today. I pray, Lord, that, that you would lay on the heart of believers in this room the name or names of some friends, family members, co-workers, neighbors, who need Jesus. And I pray you would show us how to get out of our comfort zone to get people to Jesus, Lord. We love you. Have your way in our hearts, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and worship, and you come as God leads you.